I probably watched that in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Demon Knight or Bordello of Blood? Uh, Demon Knight. <laughs> I, I have a weird memory. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's just move on. <laughs> no questions. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades, let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's another all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James. And this week, we wrap up January with a best of duel. I will be competing with January 1986 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, rolling with the 70s, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. Uh, they, they brought me back. From behind the uh, the judges podium thing, there I got rid of the gavel the last two weeks, and I'm back again. Let's see if I can actually take this one. But I have January of 1976. I'm going way back. Also on the show, repping the 90s is the media king of the north. Please welcome Joe Finley. Hey everybody. A um, little bit of an interesting story here because I'm actually. Uh pinch hitting for the wonderful drew zachman who was unable to make it today so i'm actually making picks that he uh provided for me made a couple of changes though and i'll explain why as we go along but i am taking on january of 1995 and as always here on the show we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness so this week back behind the bench is the front man and founder of weedis all rise for brendan b brown <laughs> Hey, fellas, how are you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show, like, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right over to our guest judge for this episode, Brendan B. Brown, for the coin toss. Okay, today we're tossing uh, the uh, uh, vintage uh, year 2000 Wheatus mouse pad. Um, one side is has something on it and the other does not, so that's how we're rolling. Where can you pick up one of those? Is that completely like a... out of production, oh. utterly, utterly and and totally <laughs> not, no longer being made. Um, yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to flip this. I'm guessing that heads is this side. Are we in agreement yeah, on that? Yeah. OK, we ready. All right. Joe Finley, uh, why don't you call it this week? All right. We're going to go heads. All right. He's called heads. Oh, wow. 
Oh, tails. <laughs> that was the hardest throw ever. Did that bounce off your ceiling? Yeah. <laughs> tails. All right, Man Crush, you win the coin toss. You take control of the board, and you get to select our first category. All right. Uh, I'm going to start with movies. All right. All right. So I'm going a bit outside the box on this one because there was jack shit for major releases <laughs> in January of 1976. And when I say that, I'm talking about America. But if you go across the pond, we do have some options. However, I don't speak another language and there's only one type of foreign film that I watch and enjoy, whether it's dubbed or not. And that's a martial arts film, right? Like it's the best thing you can watch. So I, I got digging through like all the releases in January. There were a ton overseas. It was just seriously, there were like two in America and there were some solid options, uh, including there was a Sonny Chiba flick, rest in peace, but I, I picked them not too long ago. So I skipped that one. So I kept looking and I came across two Bruce exploitation movies and they were released in January, 1976. And we've discussed this at length before the seventies were a time of exploitation. You had black exploitation, car exploitation, cannibal exploitation, biker exploitation, Nazi exploitation, sex exploitation, pretty much anything you wanted. You just threw exploitation at the end and you got yourself a brand new genre. I mean, it was glorious in the 70s. And you know what? I, I'm pretty sure everybody knows that Bruce Lee died in 1973 and he was right at the height of his popularity. This dude was taken off in America as well as overseas, obviously. And it left a huge hole in the martial arts sphere, especially in Asia. Uh, to Asia, like Bruce Lee dying in 1973 was kind of like Brad Pitt dying at the height of the 90s, like at the height of his fame in the 90s. And you got to you got to replace him with somebody. Right. So why not just find somebody that looks like him and name him something similar? And that's kind of what they did. And, and in January 1976, we get Bruce Lee imposters, Bruce Lee. And this is Bruce L.I., not to be confused with Bruce L. E. Lee. There was also another one. And the other guy starred in the other film was Danny Lee. They didn't try to mess with Bruce in the front. They just gave him the last name. So I give you a double bill of Bruce exploitation movies. You got Exit the Dragon instead of Enter the Dragon. You got Exit the Dragon, Enter the Tiger, and Bruce Lee and I. January of 1976. Wow. Two God. in one month. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, uh, what did you and Drew Zachman bring for the movies round? <laughs> well, Drew brought this, but I happen to agree with him, so we're going to go ahead with it. On uh, January 13th, 1995, we have a movie that was based on a popular TV show, uh, which was a horror compilation, and everybody's favorite crypt keeper brought us Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight. Uh, amazing fun film uh, with William Sadler, Billy Zane, a young Jada Pinkett Smith before the Smith and before she got all weird with all that. And uh, just a really cool uh, overall group of people. Who else? Thomas Hayden Church was in it and uh, just a, a bunch of people. And it was really good. It was a really fun story and it was just well told. Uh, it's about ex-soldier Frank Breaker. He is the guardian of an ancient key that can unlock at a tremendous evil and the sinister but charming collector Billy Zane, who's a demon who wants the key so he can initiate the apocalypse. On the run from wicked mercenaries for almost 90 years, Breaker finally stops in a boarding house in New Mexico where, with the help of quirky residents, plans to face off against the collector and his band of ghouls, preventing them from seizing the key. Uh, 
it's simple. It's very, it's as Tales from the Crypt as it gets. It takes you right back to kind of any of the TV show episodes. It's just a big, long one. Uh, kicks the shit out of Bordello of Blood and had a killer. Yeah, and had a killer soundtrack on top of that. You had things like Pantera, Sepultura, Bio, Biohazard, uh, Filter with Hey Man, Nice Shot on there was one of the big ones and uh, Grave Diggers. And it was one of a uh, few soundtracks that i had when i was around that age and it was just a fantastic one so i give you tales from the crypt presents demon knight nice yeah i always liked demon knight way way better than bordello of blood but bordello of blood had uh what's her name angie angie everhart everhart was in it oh man she was hot i probably watched that in my underwear (laughs) (laughs) demon knight or bordello of blood uh demon knight <laughs> i i have a weird memory yeah okay so let's, let's just move on no questions <laughs> all right fellas uh for my movies pick this week i present to you the robot on the loose movie that took 1986 by storm released january 31st 1986 four months before short circuit i give you the tale of the mandroid it's eliminators this <laughs> I was actually writing short circuit until you said that. And then I scratched it. <laughs> what year was this tragedy? 1986. Oh man. So this movie I distinctly remember seeing every time I went to go rent a movie. Now the bar the box art for this one was so iconic. It had, you know, a half man, half tank in his ragtag crew all around him. They were kind of charging straight out at you, guns ablaze. So much like me, if you went to the, the video rental store and you pick this one up, the back of the box reads, when genius turns to evil, can the world be saved? Abbott Reeves is a brilliant scientist who's mastered time travel and created a mandroid, half man, half machine. The mandroid is a former pilot named John who was rescued from a plane crash by Reeves and transformed into his slave. In truth, Reeves is an evil madman whose sole aim is to rule the world. Result, mandroid is out to avenge himself on his creator. He gains the help of a beautiful Nora, One of Reeves' scientists, soon added to their group, is Fontana, a Mexican jungle guide, and finally a kung fu expert with a mission of his own. Eliminators is an action-packed science fiction that spans not only centuries of historical worlds, but includes fantastic weaponry not yet invented. Breathtaking adventure for all ages. It's 95 minutes long. This film was actually produced by the legend of low budget, Mr. Charles Band, and directed by Peter Mnugin, who later would go on to direct Arena, the 1989 uh, classic, which happens to be the best movie ever made on intergalactic prize fighting. So Eliminators made $4.6 million at the box office, but much like a lot of films we talk about on this show, it became a rental and a cable staple probably for about the rest of the 80s. So I give you Eliminators, January 1986. This is like the 80s version of Expendables. <laughs> yeah. I've always wanted to watch it. Comes out four months before Short Circuit, and the mandroid escapes because the scientist is going to take him apart. 
Short of saying no disassemble, it, it's pretty <laughs> close to short circuit, just way better. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit more dystopian too. I mean, oh yeah, you got um, what was the what was the header? Uh, when genius turns to evil, can the world be saved? <laughs> um, are, are we kind of finding that out right now in in real life? Anything um, with a ninja in it is uh, it's, yeah. it's slam dunk. All right, so let's toss this one down to our guest judge for this episode for his ruling on the movies round. Okay, so I found this one to be difficult because um, I think I only saw one of them and I have vague memories of not being fully dressed. So um, the the uh, I was also incredibly disappointed about the information regarding mu- movie releases in January of 1976 because, and we can look this up right now, uh, my father took me to the first movie he ever took me to, just he, he and I. Uh, sometime, I think in January of 1976, I was three years old, and the movie we saw was Sasquatch. Sasquatch. <laughs> now, if you if you look this up, this movie is really cheesy and not a movie you should take a three-year-old to see. <laughs> Why not? But, <laughs> it is underwear. Um, yeah. <laughs> I might have been wearing a diaper, but um, regardless, I, I've, I've felt sad that that was that that wasn't one of the films that you stumbled across because that would have been fantastic. So this, but you had this some is bo- the two, the two uh, major releases. They're not even major. It was the uh, the witch who came from the sea, and uh, the other one it looks like some Norwegian shit. But Sasquatch. While you're talking, let me look up Sasquatch. Go I've got it up here. Yeah. It's uh, oh, it, what, the release what, date just says 1976. It doesn't have any. Uh, oh, like, it's one of those. Date. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say that it was January because I, <laughs> I also, my dad uh, walked across the street in front of me and uh, I walked across behind him. Uh, he wasn't holding my hand or anything. I got it. And I was on, I was on ice. So it was February you know. 13th, 1976. Oh, okay. <sighs> close. Very close. Dang. <laughs> Very close. Okay. Well, you can watch that piece of shit anytime you'd like and really go back to my, that's my first movie. (laughs) First movie I ever saw in a theater, Sasquatch. Okay. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, you had a couple of bootleg Bruce Lee movies, basically. Yeah. Did you enjoy them? You really got into it? You loved it? I wouldn't say I loved them. They, uh, they were very good parody. I don't think they were going for that, but uh, when you watch it now, it's they're awful. I mean, they're just fun. They're not good, yeah, at all. You can't well, you can't fake it, Bruce Lee, and there's like nine different guys that were Bruce Lee for a you know like a ten year period, and they yeah, all no, no, suck. nobody comes close. Nah. Nobody, nobody t- can touch him. Um, okay, so well, I'm just gonna go ahead and vote because. Um, you know, the, 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 the one from 1986 was, uh, a little too close to home, uh, in that it's just kind of <laughs> felt a little too real. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the bootleg Lee movies are kind of like, oh man, you know, just a reminder that he died and then his son died. It's just like, ugh, you know, right in the heart. Um, so I'm going to go with the only one that had, uh, you would have told me that Jada Smith or Jada Pinkett. <laughs> Uh, was was in a movie that Pantera was also in. I would in the '90s. I would have thought that that's probably not a thing. However, I was wrong tonight, and now I have something to look forward to. So it's going to be the Pantera Jada mashup. Um, 
called uh, Demon Knight or whatever. Demon Knight, yes. that was it? I actually saw it. Believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, she had a heavy metal band. Yeah. I saw her at Ozfest. Yeah. I forgot what the, what the name of her band was, though. I, I don't yeah, remember I re- them being very good, though. They were, like, on the side stage. Um, yeah, Willow's band is great. That 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 her songs kick ass. I don't know if you've been listening. No, but, but not uh not Jadis. <laughs> Jadis for <laughs> not. <laughs> well, Willow probably has Will to help out. I mean, she didn't have anybody to help out. I don't know, man. This stuff is like this stuff is like some heavy rock. Uh Travis Barker is on the tracks and oh, nice. playing drums. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's cool. It's really cool. Um yeah, I don't think it it doesn't sound like either of her parents, not even close. Um but uh um yeah, I mean uh that that's it. That's the one. The Jada the Jada Pantera mashup's got to be it. Demon Knight takes it. All right, Joe Finley, you win the first round, you pick up the first point. But more importantly, you take control of the board and you get to select our next category. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and take something that uh, usually has a home in the one-point rounds, and I'm going to go ahead with hot products. Oh, boy. All right. (laughs) So I was left with a couple of choices uh, from Drew. He had kind of written down a couple of options, and I went with the one that was a little bit more out of the box. Uh, The hot product I give you today, which was dedicated in January 26th, 1995, is actually a bit of a tourist attraction that no longer can be visited. Uh, But at the time... uh, she was running for governor of New Jersey. Uh, Christine Todd Whitman was on Howard Stern and said that in exchange for his support, she would name a rest stop after him uh, in New Jersey. And she won, and true to her word, she named a rest stop on the southbound I-295 in New Jersey after the famed radio host. And it was the Howard Stern rest stop, and it got shut down in uh 2003 they said it was due to economic downturn but apparently there was a lot of rest stop goings on there that they believe was the real cause of that (laughs) but uh for a long time people were going there and you know getting their pictures taken at the howard stern rest stop and doing god knows what else at the howard stern rest stop uh and now it is currently on private property you actually can't go visit there anymore but uh yeah at the time it was a it was a hot little stop on on the i295 so i give you i i give you a hot product that didn't cost a dime or cost the taxpayers a little something but didn't cost me anything so i give you the howard stern rest stop in new jersey wait where did uh george michael get arrested it was not at the howard stern rest stop (laughs) oh well poor george yes seriously All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the hot products round? All right, so let's go uh, January 18th, 1976. You know, we got the Super Bowl right around the corner, so this seemed fitting to to bring this one. I'm surprised that Joe didn't bring that in the 90s, but maybe that was one of the ones that was on his list. But first off, go Bengals. I mean, for <laughs> real. I mean, I don't care if you're a Rams fan, you have to be rooting for the Bengals. Oh, totally. Next to Yeah, next to the Jets. I'm a Jets fan, so I could say this. The Bengals are like the doormat of the NFL. I mean, up till this year. The <laughs> Jets actually beat them this year. Which are you a Mets fan too? You're I one am. of these like Mets Jets guys. Okay. Yeah. Just check. Sadly, Just check. sadly. Um, and I'm from the Bronx, which is bizarre. But I'll blame my dad. What happened, man? <laughs> yeah, what that's happened? my dad's fault. He went the wrong direction. 
I think, you know what it was? <laughs> I think uh, he got into it in like 1969. They both won. And that's just how it went. And that was the end of it. Because uh, my entire yeah, life, that was it. they haven't won shit. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Mets won in 86. I got one. I got one championship for all these years. Fucking awful. <laughs> um, but this, I'm going uh, Bengals 27, Rams 24. What do you guys got for the Super Bowl? I'm going to say 24-18, Bengals. 18. That's a weird number. It's like uh, CFL rules. Just gonna be six field goals. What do you think, Brendan? Are you are you guys talking about sports? Oh yeah, you don't you don't like sports at all? <laughs> Come on. No, I I I I I like some baseball, but I never watch football. It's like even the Super Bowl for the commercials. Nah, well, sometimes I mean, sometimes I'm in the room, but uh, it's <laughs> it's go. it's more about the food. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like football is only exciting for like a a, a moment, and then it's done. Whereas baseball is this tension can be going the whole for a long time, you know, um, and there's no there's no scheduled ending. But anyway, that's, that's kind I, of true. Yeah. Well, you know what? Give a score because uh, you might be right. Uh, twenty-seven sixteen. Who's gonna win? Uh, the Bengals. Yeah. All right, so we got three for the Bengals. Where are you going, Mark? Twenty-eight nineteen Bengals. It's a clean sweep. All right. Yeah. I just I had to see where it's wishful out. thinking, really. But I don't, you know. I don't know. I think they, <laughs> I think they have a good chance. I think they. Hey, do. they got Macaulay Calkin as their quarterback. So, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the way that Joe Burrow dresses off the bus with his yeah. huge gold chains and shit? Do you think that's like a like a hazing thing? Like they're like, yeah, you got to wear this. And he's like, seriously, yes. man. Oh, it's definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely. so massive. It doesn't fit him at all. No. Anyhow, so uh, let's go back to the Super Bowl thing. Thanks for uh, giving me your predictions. I'll uh, I'll bet on all of them because now uh, sports betting is legal in New York, so why not lose my money? Uh, but much like uh, this game that we were predicting to be pretty close, uh, this game that I'm talking about was uh, really close. This matchup was between the Steelers and the Cowboys, and before a crowd of just over 80,000, the Steelers knocked off the Cowboys 21-17 to for back-to-back Super Bowl victories, and the Steelers' uh, classic Classic game. Steelers were down 10 going into the fourth quarter. They scored 14 points in the final quarter. They intercepted a pass in the end zone as time expired. It's an awesome Super Bowl. And then Lynn Swan catches the uh, the game-winning touchdown, which was like 64 yards or something like that. And he wasn't even supposed to play because he had uh, some kind of concussion or whatever. So, I mean, it's storybook shit for the 70s. I mean, and you got to think about medicine in 1976. This dude was probably like, could get like seriously concussed and he was out there playing. So, but this was a huge deal and it, it wasn't just a huge deal because it was America's team that was going against the defending champs. It was also a huge deal because this is the, like the biggest sporting event of the bicentennial year, at least up to that point. Cause this is only January. And we spoke about this on the show before in 1976 and Brendan, it sounds like you lived through this. I, I missed it by a couple of years, but everything in America was amplified by the bicentennial and that included football because even for the halftime show of this game, all centered around the bicentennial. And then on top of that, this was Super Bowl 10. So this was like a, a big fucking deal for the league. 10th anniversary of the Super Bowl and all that shit. So let's get to the hot product. So for all this awesomeness, you can get a Super Bowl ticket for $20 in the upper deck. I mean, you're going to sit up top, but for 20 bucks, it's the equivalent of $100 in 2022. By comparison's sake, if you wanted to get an upper deck ticket, and this is 
obviously nobody can get these at this point. But if you were to get one, you were offered a ticket, Upper Deck for the Super Bowl, $354 is that ticket. I doubt anybody ever sees it for $354. It's probably like $35,000 or some shit. But even in 1976, people were getting scammed. They found a little article uh, that said people were getting swindled. Uh, police say as many as 5,000 football fans were soaked in their hotel rooms or threw themselves at the mercy of scalpers after learning that they had swindled, that they were swindled out of Super Bowl tickets in a package tour to Miami. So what these companies were doing is they were putting together these fake uh, package tours to like go to Miami, but they were selling people fake tickets because it's 1976. <laughs> they're probably just printing that shit on a copy and they're like, here you go, bro. Have fun. And they got to the gate and they were like, the fuck is this? But yeah, it's uh, Super Bowl tickets, Super Bowl 10. You know, I, I don't know what the technology was for, for printing things in 1976. It would have been a rare thing to have, to have a printer of any kind. You needed a friend at a print shop, and you were gold. Yeah. You make money. <laughs> you can make tickets. Exactly. Counterfeit Super Bowl tickets. Yeah. I guess you could say that's a hot product. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> All right, guys. So for my hot product this week, let's give the old comics rack a spin. Published January 1st, 1986, I give you The Punisher, number one. So in the early 1980s, Incredible Hulk and Avengers writer Stephen Grant, he teamed up with Spider-Man artist Mike Zeck, and they originally pitched Marvel about doing a solo series for The Punisher, a character that actually debuted in Amazing Spider-Man number 129 all the way back in 1974. But at the time, Marvel really wasn't too keen on having one of its lead characters being a cold-blooded killer. But by 1986, crime was kind of on the rise in the streets, and that was being reflected a little bit more in pop culture. So Marvel decided to test the market. And in January of 1986, published the first of five in a brand new Punisher miniseries. Although the cover actually reads number one of four, that's a misprint, and it would appear on all of the issues except for number two, which says two of five, which is correct. So in the first issue titled Circle of Blood, the Punisher's real first name is revealed for the first time as, of course, Frank Castle. And after a drug-induced bloody rampage, Frank once again finds himself behind bars, where he discovers his old enemy, Jigsaw, a criminal with a severely scarred face, is responsible. Uh, the series actually kind of broke some new ground for Marvel and may have shocked some unsuspecting readers in the process. Uh, the series actually includes a suicide, the death of an innocent child, and Frank gets laid. So since The Punisher, number one, uh, The Punisher has gone on to become one of Marvel's most beloved characters with several titles to his name, including video games, movies, a Netflix series, and in 1994, he, have, he even met up with Archie and the gang. So uh, this book is actually widely collected now. You can pick one up ranging in prices, depending on the grade, anywhere from 50 bucks to uh, 2,500 bucks. So it's The Punisher, number one, January 1986. I remember reading that in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely the did it in your underwear episode. Um, All right, let's throw it down to Brendan B. Brown for his ruling on the Hut Products round. All right, so uh, we got the Baba Booey, New Jersey rest stop. Uh <laughs> 
from from Joe. Uh, we got the man crush has twenty dollar bootleg tickets again. You with the bootleg stuff? <laughs> no, no, um, that wasn't tw- that was twenty dollars. That was a real deal. Price no, I know, but we we're talking about you seem to be on a bootleg theme because you brought up the fact that they were bootleg. True, and somebody got swindled. it's nineteen seventy six, bro. This is bootleg shit. You That's know, what we did people. People were just coming off of the Nixon episode and they were trying to feel good about the country being around for 200 years and they were ripping each other off with 20 dollars <laughs> super bowl tickets america america <laughs> um so uh and then we got the punisher uh the 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 episode uh uh issue one i guess it would be called um oh i went going back uh a sec for man crush who won that super bowl oh the steelers did back to back steelers that makes it yeah. tough because if this if this fucking cowboys one it would have been dead out of the running oh god wash it can you imagine Never. the cowboys america's team won on the bicentennial year it would have been that much worse now yeah boo Ugh. um so we got baba Booey uh rip off tickets to see the steelers win which is kind of cool and uh we got uh punisher which is i i think really cool now you brought up some some of the shit that happened in that uh issue yeah that's that's wild. How much does that thing go for? If you can find one, uh, like I said, it, it's it ranges. It depends on uh, the condition, but you can get them anywhere from like fifty bucks. And if you want like a nine point eight graded, that's like twenty five hundred dollars. Right now, the the uh, Punisher movie just came out. Right? Am I right about that? Uh, well, yeah, they did the, the Netflix sh- the shows. And, yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Okay, right. So you can see how much I've been in this basement twiddling knobs um, it was like four years ago I yeah think. three like or four that. years ago oh really yeah. it was it was close it wasn't that far wow anyway um moving right along so i'm just gonna go ahead and make a call this is tough because i really like these three things and i don't even like football um <laughs> he likes bootleg tickets i like bootleg shit that's lots cool. of good rest stop. um baba Bowie having a truck stop that's no longer there that's a big that's a whole like you can't get that. Even if you have the money, you can't get that. You know, I'm sure you can find one of these tickets somewhere in somebody's keepsake box and get give them enough money to let it go. And you can definitely find that Punisher issue, but no one's going to be able to find that truck stop. <laughs> Literally. You know, and that's another sad thing. It's like, think of all the stuff that happened there. You know, all of the transactions, all the meetings, all of the... I heard bootleg tickets were sold there. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's all gone. It's all gone. It's all gone to his disappeared. You know, it's 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 unwritten from history. You know. Imagine him doing a blue light test in there. Oh. Yeah, you can't even do it. You can't even do that. You can't even. You couldn't get the FBI to go in there and find some DNA. You couldn't do it. It's over. Wait, did right? they knock it down or is it just abandoned? It's just the only picture I saw of it was like just like a bunch of parking spots. Oh, and so that they, was kind they, of the yeah, end of it. Those, so. Tragic. Tragic. See, because Baba Booey's truck stop, you know, which I'm calling it. I know it was. I know it was Howard Stern's, but. Um, Baba Fue. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, that would have been like, I, I might have gone there next week if it was still there, you know. Where'd you lose your virginity? Oh, well, good story. <laughs> well, so I got a story for you. Uh, <laughs> Jackie, the joke man, Martling, was there cheering me up. <laughs> he, he dated my mom, by the way. Okay, we're going to move on from that. But um, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> true story. Um, but uh, okay, so uh, we're gonna go ahead and 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 stick with Howard. Chris, uh, Christy Todd Whit- Whitman gave us something special that we can no longer appreciate. We can no longer go to and and uh, 
It's a tragedy, in my opinion. So we're going to give it the props it deserves. The Baba Booey Howard Stern rest stop is the winner. I have an idea. Why don't you try to do like a free show there? Just like at the site. <laughs> and you imagine, that, you know, there might be people who go on, who go on pilgrimages and just stand there and go, it was here, man. It was right here. <laughs> I'm telling you. There was a glory hole. Yeah. Oh, it's the greatest. <laughs> you, you, your generation really missed this. You know, they bring their kids. <laughs> Scoop a little bit of dirt into a jar and put it in there, and then they get syphilis on the way home. <laughs> the condom dispenser is always empty, but... Oh, the animals goodness. still don't come around. Yeah. Majestic. Oh, man. All right, Joe Finley. Well, you're out to a commanding lead. You pick up another point heading into our final one-point round. Uh, what category are we going with next? Oh, well, I, I always hate to do this when we have a musician as a judge, but I'm going to have to go with music to, ca to uh, cap off the oh boy. one point rounds right now. Okay. So I, I was given a couple of choices by Drew. I tried to stay loyal to his picks as much as I can. There's one that I just flat out refused, but everything else came from his paper. And uh, this one, he gave me two choices. One was the Demon Knight soundtrack, so I didn't want to double dip and then the other one was this one released january 24th 1995 it's the 10th album from van halen balance uh following their previous studio album uh for unlawful carnal knowledge uh they released their 10th studio album and it was the last studio album to feature sammy hagar as the lead singer uh and then he wanted to write a little note here for you as well if you ask me which you don't i don't care i'm always team hagar That's what <laughs> <laughs> and here um the album reached number one on the bill u.s billboard top 200 in february 1995 which is impressive given just the music landscape at the time that wasn't really you, you know like 10 10 albums in van halen wasn't what was really hot at the time uh one of their top songs off the album was can't stop loving you peaked at number 30 on the u.s billboard hot 100 uh they, it sold over 3 million copies going triple platinum in the u.s uh, ranks um for the opening track seventh seal was nominated for a grammy for best hard rock performance it's van halen you can't you know cannot even even in the 90s, you still can't knock Van Halen. So uh, that's what I give you, January 24th, 1995. And no one Balance. scats like Sammy Hagar. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so let's go to January 6th of 1976. And I've said this before with music, and I think it's the truth, however... In this case, I went with, or well, I went against my typical criteria, which is I usually try to pick something that I enjoy so I, you can kind of feel it in my pick. Um, this album, it's got lots of accolades, but it's just, it's not my thing. I basically picked it for one reason in particular, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but the album in question here, it's this artist's fifth album in total. This is his first live album ever. All right. And the funny thing was his first four albums, they weren't really that popular whatsoever. Uh, only one of them, it was the one previous to this. It was certified gold and it climbed to, I think, number 32 on the pop charts or something. Uh, the other ones, they weren't even close to that on the chart. So this album kind of came out of nowhere. So let me ask you a question, Brendan. Yeah. 
you being in the music business, if you released four like not so popular albums, would the progression be to release a live album for your fifth album? Because I've always felt personally like live albums were kind of reserved for like real bangers, like, you know, like like Pearl Jam putting out a, a live album or something like somebody huge is putting out a live album, not somebody that had like four eh, so so albums and then boom, here's this live album. Is that kind of out of the norm for this? I know it's 1976, so the rules well, probably so, uh, are way different. A, a little inside baseball here. Um, record deals are structured around album cycles, and sometimes if a band is swinging and missing after four records that are not really – you were saying they whoever this is, it wasn't connecting, right? Is it those, right. Um, it was so-so. Yeah. Well, sometimes if you're out of gas and, and you have another record you have to deliver – uh, the contract may stipulate that you can uh, check the box with a live recording, which means that you don't have to hire the big producer and write a bunch of songs. You just take the old stuff on the road and you get a, what well, back then it would have been a recording truck and uh, they pull up outside of the uh, felt forum or whatever it is and uh, and uh, record uh, to reel to reel tape uh, what's going on in the, in the big stadium there. So that would right. have been, yeah. So there it is. I mean, that makes a lot of sense now because I looking at this and it, like I said, I'm not a huge fan. I was like, I don't get it. Like, why would you go to a live album? But I mean, in this case, it worked out. Right. So all that being said, the album went on to become one of the best selling live albums of all time. Went eight times platinum in the process. The album topped pretty much every major chart around the world and it featured three singles. Do you feel like we do, which reached number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100? Show me your way which this is something I don't like about this album. There's two songs that are huge, two singles, both end in the word way. That always bothers yeah. me for some reason. But that uh, Show Me Your Way ended up uh, number six on the Billboard Hot 100. And then Baby, I Love Your Way, uh, which would reach number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. And I give you Frampton Comes Alive by Peter Frampton, which was partially recorded at the Long Island Arena in... Comac, New York. Now, Brendan, what shirt were you wearing in the Teenage Dirtbag video? I was wearing my brother's uh, Comac Little League baseball jersey. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. There's a connection why I picked it. Wow. Um, <laughs> we had, uh, I come from a rather large Italian family, or at least one side of it is Italian. And um, there were uh, three of the older aunts uh, who showed up at Christmas from time to time were the Arena Sisters. That was their last name. And uh, my cousin Ralphie thought he was funny. And every time they came in through the door, he would say, oh, look, there's G a Rose Arena, Jean Arena, and Comac Arena. <laughs> and so it was this big family joke. Um, I didn't know that about the Frampton record. That's incredible. It was recorded very close to uh, where I grew up. That's crazy. Yep. Um, just part like I think it was done at like three different places, but that's the most important, right? So yeah, it's for yeah. the best. Wow, interesting. Well, I've I got when we're all done here, I'll go back and change my explanation of what I think why that maybe happened. But okay, yeah. all right, all right. So 1986 was a great year for music, but nobody started it off quite like the sisters Debbie and Vicky Peterson, Mickey Steele and the alluring Susanna Hoffs, better known as the Bangles. Because on January 2nd, 1986, they released their second album, Different Light. 
the album was kind of a departure from the band's retro sound. Uh, on this album, they kind of reinvented themselves with a more pop rock edge. Uh, the album gave us five singles, including If She Knew What She Wants, Walking Down Your Street, and Following, uh, with the lead single being a song written by Prince, Manic Monday. It debuted at number 86, but ultimately reached number two on the charts, only to be shut out of the top spot from another song from Prince, Kiss. But if there's any song on this album that's carved in stone, it's the third single. And it's a song that was inspired by seeing people walk awkwardly on a boat. It's Walk Like an Egyptian, the band's first number one single and Billboard's number one song of 1987. Uh, the music video for Walk Like an Egyptian was nominated for Best Group Video at the 1987 MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, Different Light would sell over 3 million albums. And Slant Magazine would rank it at number 78 on its list of best albums of the 80s. So I give you Different Light, the second album, by the Bengals. Oh, Susanna Hoffs. I remember listening to that album in my underwear, like, last week. <laughs> Just this morning. Um, <laughs> I remember watching that video and taking off my underwear. <laughs> uh. Ah, uh, you don't take them off. And it was it was going so well. <laughs> Everything was fine. And then that. Wow. You guys are good at this. I ever mentioned that? Did I ever say that before? <laughs> All right. So let's toss it over to Brendan B. Brown for his ruling on the music round. All right. So this is this is damn near impossible because I have two favorites on this list, and I also have one really that I'm really interested in. Um if you don't mind me skipping ahead I'll, to the Man Crush uh, Frampton thing, uh, first of all, way closer to home than I could have imagined. New information. You're learning something new tonight, Brendan. Um, also, uh, I, don't, I don't think that they were in a period of not, of not connecting on their records, uh, him and his band. Um, I think that what was going on there was probably they didn't have the right person at the label who was you know they they were probably a kind of, i'm just i'm speculating i'm totally spitballing here i don't know anything for a fact but that sounds to me like the kind of thing where the audience was ahead of the label on how cool something was right and it, it was it was probably uh their only chance to go in and make a record because the label had probably had enough of spending money on it. They might've been getting dropped or whatever. It might've been over for them at the label. And I bet that that had more to do with a personal relationship and not with the business of what they were doing. Because if you're selling out arenas all over the place and you're doing live shows enough to make a, a record of them, then you're, and people are loving the music, you know, come on. The, the label just right. hasn't done and, the job. And he yet. had so some lineage, I, right? Like he was in other bands before that. Before he went solo, yeah. so I yeah, people knew who he was. It just wasn't yeah. hitting, you know. His his other uh, the other four, I think the other ones were like all in the hundreds. I think ranking wise, like one ten, like somewhere around there. And that last album was thirty two, and then that live album just blew up. Yeah, well, it's also you know sometimes producers get it wrong, right? Yeah. Sometimes they can't capture a band. There's an Irish band called The Frames who they're the only producer who ever did anything good for them was Steve Albini. He's the only one who really knew how to lock it down. But 
you see them live and you understand this cannot be recorded. Like this isn't, this is not, this doesn't go in a studio. This is, can't happen in a studio. Right. It's crazy. Um, and of course, one of the most famous examples of that was Kiss. It wasn't till alive that people really understood what the energy that that band had. It just never yeah. came across on the albums. It doesn't. It still doesn't. Uh, I, I one of my favorite Kiss songs is uh, "Cold Gin." Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, it just. I mean, I when I play it on guitar, I get more of off of it than when I listen to it on the recording. Yeah. You know, it's weird. It's weird. It's like they can't be captured. They're too. They're too big. Um, but uh, here's my problem. I'm a huge. Uh, Sammy Hagar, Van Halen period fan, right? Um, but I, I just, I'm not going to be able to say no to Susanna Hoffs uh, <laughs> and that record because that record was this like, first of all, the Bangles are a kick ass rock band. They're just, you know, incredible and came up at a time when rock was rather masculine and duty and douchey and the hair metal had begun. You know, it was like, it was a weird time to be a Bangle, I would say. Um, Let me ask you this question. If you put the Bengals, take out Susanna Hoffs, you took the rest of the band and you looked at uh, the front cover of uh, Look What the Cat Dragged In and the Bengals, <laughs> who's more attractive in 1986? I thought Poison was a girl band when I saw that. <laughs> I know that. that <laughs> my daughter actually, uh, this Wait, probably like a month ago. She said, Yeah, she said <laughs> we saw the picture of the cover. She thought it was chicks. Uh, I did some weird things in my underwear to that poster. <laughs> my underwear came flying off when I got that Poison record. Oh, uh, look what you did, Mark. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, I, and at the time, for me, I... You know the bangles weren't glitzy or glammy at all they just rocked they had you know they were like uh, like a, a female version of tom petty and the heartbreakers they had their you know rickenbacker guitars and they're playing some vintage amps and they were just like good yeah. you know yeah. um same reason i liked acdc and didn't like slaughter you know like that kind of you know thing um but uh but when for me when sammy joined van halen they they went up a notch in a way that they could never have done with any other vocalist because Sammy was also a really accomplished guitarist. Yeah. Right. Yep. And a, and a singer songwriter in his own right on the guitar. So, um, however, 1995 was a weird year for that because although I kind of, I got for on carnal, uh, for unlawful carnal knowledge, um, I think I actually had it on vinyl, believe it or not. Um, that, uh, that record was cool. And they had the drill with the pound cake song yep. and all that stuff. But, um, I didn't I didn't buy uh Balance and I think does Balance have a very strange album artwork with like some conjoined twins yeah. on a seesaw or something? Yep. Yeah. I I'm, I'm possibly I was possibly turned off by the artwork. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry VH. I mean, you know, they're the best, but but that one got me like kind of like, ooh. But did you buy the Gary Sharon album? No. All right. I don't even know what that's called. Yeah, I don't either. That's why that I said it. was three. It was three? Three. Okay. Uh, yeah. Or wait, three people bought it? Yes. Uh. <laughs> Coincidence. Yeah, it must have been a strange time. But, you know, the Van Halen that I have the most recordings of is, the is uh, you know, I have 12 copies of 5150, you know. Like, that's that's my, that's my shit. Uh, but for me, it's going to have to be the Bangles. Um I'm going to, I'm going to call it, it's going to have to be the bangles because if we're talking about, you know, all three of these were sort of like, uh, fighting against ad, ad forms of adversity, if we will, uh, Van Halen had been, had been doing it for so long. And I understand that there were some drug problems and like, you know, Eddie was maybe 
had a hip surgery at, somewhere around then and wasn't wasn't doing so great. Um, and, uh, you know, Frampton came alive out of the basement of a record label that didn't care about him and all that stuff. And his fans were there for him. And that's great. But I think that the real mountain was climbed by the Bangles, who wound up fighting with their with one of the songwriters they worked with on their own album on the charts and still had yet another single that was iconic in its own right and superseded the you know the whole the whole uh confluence of of songwriter ness so you know i think i think it's bangles i think we're in 1986 territory and it's the bangles side note uh real quick you mentioned slaughter uh for everybody out there uh go look up mark slaughter and then look for a picture of nick jonas and tell me that's not his kid <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> all right. So I pick up a point in that round, the final one-point round. I take control of the board heading into our first two-point round. And I think that's going to have to be the news round. News round. So for news this week, let's take a trip to the historic Waldorf Astoria, New York. Uh, on the night of January 23rd, 1986, for a dinner and a reception, inducting the very first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The inaugural class was presented in alphabetical order, which meant Chuck Berry was first, followed by James Brown, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, and Elvis Presley. Also inducted was Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed, who actually coined the term rock and roll. On hand to induct the very first class was a star-studded lineup of presenters that included Keith Richards, Julian, and Sean Lennon, Billy Joel, Steve Winwood, Neil Young, Roberta Flack, Hank Williams Jr., and Quincy Jones. So the highlight of the night was actually the very first All-Star Jam, which would go on to be an annual tradition. Uh, Paul Schaefer in the world's most dangerous band, they backed the inductees all on stage with Steve Winwood, John Fogarty, Billy Joel, and ZZ Top. Uh, they played rock and roll. They played uh, Roll Over Beethoven, Johnny Be Good, Great Balls of Fire, even The Twist. So it's the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, January 23rd, 1986. All right, Joe Finley, let's toss it over to you. What did you bring for the news round? This is the one where I actually turned down what Drew had provided me because I knew I was going to get crucified on here, particularly by man crush. Was it like an assassination or something? It was the beginning of the OJ trial. Oh, <laughs> and, and I explained to my wife today, I was like, yep, that's uh, OJ and Princess Die. Not yeah. a thing we we're talking about in the 90s anymore. So uh, I did have something that he had in his tiebreakers that I decided to utilize, and it's good. It's so good, in fact, that it was in newspapers for 15 years. Uh, I give you, on January 1st, 1995, the final Farside cartoon by Gary Larson. Ooh. So literally, like to start off the year, he actually um, he did it for exactly 15 years because his very first Far Side comic was January 1st, 1980 in the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, the comics very soon began to spread all over to newspapers all over the country. Uh, he went from writing four a week to six a week to seven a week, and then they were all over the place. Uh, after the 15 years, he stopped. He said he didn't want his 
cartoon to turn into a graveyard of mediocre cartoons and so he just decided to move on and he got really protective of uh the comics after his run though they did some merchandising things you could go find the daily calendars you could find the he had a whole compendium that came out at some point but uh there were some in the 90s you know when you know the internet was still fairly small all things considered uh some little comic like compendium like websites they had farside comics on and he sued them he had cease and desists you cannot put my stuff on even though he had a website for farside and did not put any of their car the comics on it it was just information about wow. the comics so um it wasn't until 2019 that you could actually find them in a proper way on the internet uh when he, they revamped the farside website and started putting them on there but in july of 2020 he started drawing them again so now finally all digitally he was working on a digital tablet and releasing them on the website he's not doing them as a regular thing he just kind of does them every now and again uh but yeah this is one with hella legs because you think between 1995 and 2019 there was nothing yet still a demand for him by the time 2020 came around and everybody was all excited and find a year where you can't find something far side and like a gifty kind of shop or one of those calendar places or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty big one in the newspaper world. Uh, the final far side cartoon of January 1st, 1995. Every time you say far side, I think of the rap group. <laughs> <laughs> That's with a P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man crush. What did you bring for the news round? All right. So let's go to January 18th of 1976. And since we have a musician on today, I figured it's a relevant story. And uh, as I read this, Brendan, tell me if you ever had somebody that's in the business do something like this. I, I thought this was pretty astonishing, but I got to read it from the article because there's one section in it that's fucking hilarious uh, to me, at least. All right. So this is uh, I won't even give you the headline just yet. Uh, it's out of Denver, Colorado. And here we go. It says, uh, we're all a little bit excited, said uh, automobile salesman Bob Serber on Thursday, recalling the scene when Elvis Presley bought new Lincoln Mark IVs for a Denver police officer and a police department doctor. They weren't the only examples of Presley's Largesi. I don't even know what the fuck that is, but I guess that means. Large ass. Oh, is that what it is? Large, large ass. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't they weren't the only examples of presley's large ass on wednesday yeah it was 1976 that makes sense um he also bought an ice blue cadillac with a sunroof for a denver detective and luxury cars for two persons vacationing with him in the colorado mountains the subtotal was about seventy thousand dollars Serber said he learned of presley's plans late wednesday night on a telephone call from vale colorado where presley's party was staying we were a little bit skeptical at first and checked around to see what was up, Serber said. Convinced that the call was legitimate, Serber said him and his his firm's sales manager returned for, for an 8 p.m. rendezvous two hours after the normal closing time. And I quote, it was almost nine when they showed up and they decided to stay till at least 10. So in an hour, he bought four cars. Uh, he said Presley's party arrived. The singer told Captain Jerry Kennedy head of the police department in Denver, uh, the vice squad and Dr. Gerald Starkey, a Denver uh, police physician to choose the cars that they wanted off the lot. Uh, Presley met Starkey in Las Vegas in November, 1970. Uh, and Kennedy met the singer at about the same time and had served as a security man on Presley's subsequent trips to Colorado. Now Starkey sitting in his new 
Brown on Brown, Mark Four, and listening to tapes of Presley said Thursday, uh, Presley had called him for medication to treat an itch caused by a ski mask he had been wearing to keep him from drawing crowds. So this dude bought four cars, one for a police doctor who uh, prescribed him uh, medication for an itch for his face. It's good to be the king. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it is pretty cool. They go on in the article saying that uh, he called the guy and his wife answered, and they he asked them about their cars, and she told him the car that they had, and he was like, oh, what's your other car? And she's like, we don't have another car. And he's like, well, you will tonight. And he bought them a car. Four cars. And the other two people were just on vacation with him. He's like, ah, just throw cars in for them, too. Fuck it. Why not? The king. All right, Brendan, what is your verdict on the news round? All right, so um, we got uh, the inaugural induction ceremony of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We got the uh, far side, the legacy of far side, if you will, um, uh, Gary Larson. And we got uh, the uh, the Cars for Cops program that Elvis started in Denver, <laughs> Colorado. Um, so a, a couple of odd notes here. First of all, um, if we could go back uh, to the uh, to the uh, far side, Joe's far side moment. Um, initially, you, you brought up, and I'm not going to let it slide. The OJ trial. I was recently discussing that with somebody who wasn't alive during the time, and I said, you know, the thing I always think about whenever I remember it, because I saw it live on TV, the the low speed car chase <laughs> in the white Bronco, and it's important to remember that. He was being driven by somebody, Al, uh, Al another yeah. NFC. Yeah, yeah, an NFL guy. Um, but uh, Mr. Al Cowling's uh, NFL guy thought that everybody knew who he was by his initials. Does anybody remember this? Yeah. So he's screaming down the phone at the <laughs> cops, going, "It's AC, goddammit! It's AC! I got OJ, got him here! It's AC, goddammit!" And and the cops are like, "Who?" Like, what are you talking about? Like, who, what? Sorry, sir, your name? AC, it's, it's AC, goddammit. And I, like, that is always the thing I think about when I think about the, that era, you know? That's this, this poor NFL Hall of Famer, probably, who thinks everybody knows who he is by his initials and is screaming it to 30 million people watching TV. And we're all like, they're like, oh shit, it's AC Slater has got OJ. <laughs> Are you guys using Zach Morris' cell phone for this? <laughs> that's why the car was so low speed, because that's a heavy-ass phone. It's on an anchor. Anyway, so so sorry if I if re-injected the OJ uh, saga. So I uh, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony is pretty cool. A lot of great names uh, there. I noticed not one single female name was listed. Yeah. Um, in the induction, um, which is a little f fucked up because yeah. there were some some really good girl groups who did excellent rock and roll in the in you know Ronnie Spector and like all these like really cool you know. It was also a terrible night for racists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had to go home, I guess. Um, <laughs> one would hope so. Uh, but uh, and and uh, you know, Farside. I, Gary, Gary Larson's not one of these people. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. He's not one of these people who's like since then lost his mind and gone really uber political or anything like that, right? Not to my knowledge. Uh, he, he somebody said, else I'm thinking. 
Yeah, no, I, most of what he does now, he just says he likes to kind of be a little experimental and stuff. He hasn't, I've not seen a lot of his new stuff, but I've not mm-hmm. seen anything that's come out that's been, you know, specifically targeted at anything like that. Sure. Well, I mean, that legacy kind of speaks for itself. I think, uh, I think that's going to last forever. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and call it at the uh, Elvis's Cars for Cops uh, scheme because <laughs> I, I I think I think your boy was was getting drugs from these cops and that <laughs> that was possible. what that was about. You want to talk about how to launder some money if cops are giving you, you know, evidence room pills because Elvis was into pills, right? You yeah. Know? And that he only had six months after that or no, he died in August. Right. So he died mm-hmm. seven months later. Right. So so and also you call a cop doctor to figure out why you're scheming. I didn't even know there was you. a cop. I didn't even think that was a real thing. Maybe in the <laughs> 70s. That sounds like some 1976 bullshit to me. He's like, yo, man, um, my dick is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching some Bruce Bloitation movies in my underwear. <laughs> I need some fucking itch cream, bro. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with it. You ever seen anyone look like this before? Shit. <laughs> You're take five. You're a cop and a doctor. You must have seen some fucked up dicks. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, that's the one I'm going with because that's just hilarious. And that is definitely, uh, definitely <laughs> some kind of shady shit. Elvis. <laughs> I was like, wait, what did you buy for who? For cops? And the one cop he knew since 1970, he waited six years to buy him the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> sure. sure man you met in nevada okay <laughs> yeah right yeah that's the winner right there because that is just just ridiculous i actually found there was another news article i I was gonna bring it and compare the two but there was a, a lady who uh at the end of january who gave up her uh her elvis fandom she she claimed she was like his biggest fan and she ran some like elvis fan club or something and she got really sick. And the, the the funny thing was she was like older. She was an older woman uh, from the picture. It's black and white from the newspaper. She looks like she's like in her 60s. And she was writing Elvis letters like for years and he never wrote her back. So she just decided one day, you know, like, you know what? Fuck you, Elvis. <laughs> and this story was like in papers for months. And because I was looking for a rebuttal, I was like, oh, obviously, like Elvis probably, you know, especially after the car thing. I was like, this is national news. It's in all these papers. He had to read it and go, you know what? I'm going to buy this chick a car. It did not find that anywhere throughout the year. And then, of course, he died in August. So why yeah. is all I'm picturing in my head is this lady like in the 50s and 60s writing Elvis all these letters and they're going unanswered. And all I can picture is like a 50s version of the stand video. <laughs> <laughs> she drives her pink Cadillac off a bridge at the end. You know? <laughs> oh man, that's just dark. All right, man, Chris, will you pick up two points? You tie this game with Joe. We're heading into our final round. And that's going to be the television round. Would you like to go first or are you going to defer? You know what? I'll just go first. Keep this one interesting. Uh, let's go January 27th, 1976. And this is an absolute juggernaut. For a January debut, uh, I'm not even going to try to sell it because these guys aren't going to have anything even remotely close to the. It's not even going to be close. I, I guarantee it. So halfway through the 1975-1976 television season, 
ABC decided that uh, Fonzie's gal pals that worked over at Shots Brewing Company needed their own show. So uh, the guy we spoke about a billion times in the show, uh, the Wonder Boy, Fred Silverman over at ABC, he decided to uh, to green light it. And we got Shamil Shamazel has in fact incorporated. We're going to do it. That's right. We got Laverne, <laughs> Laverne and Shirley. Uh, and th- it's it's fantastic because like this, it's a spinoff of Happy Days. Uh, came out midway through the year and still ends its first year as the third highest rated show on TV. Uh, second year full season, it becomes the second highest rated. Then uh, seasons three and four, it's the number one show on television. It's that's one hell of a spinoff, Laverne and Shirley. Fantastic! Wow. All right, Joe Finley. What is your offering from the television round? Well, if you've ever been wondering where Hitler's gold's at, I'm going to give you a little uh, head start here. On January 1st, 1995, the History Channel is launched in the United States. And yeah, a lot lot of Where's Hitler's Gold shows on that channel. Uh, (laughs) But the best part about all of them, even in the first episode, they're like, oh, this is it. This is Hitler's gold. Yeah, that's why it's a 16-episode season, because you find Hitler's gold, and then you talk about it for 15 episodes. But um, it has launched a an unfathomable amount of hits. Things like Ice Road Truckers, Pawn Stars, um, Forged and Fires My Bad One. Actually, just from a TV broadcaster perspective, I actually work for History Channel Canada, and so I see these things kind of pumping through all the time. Uh, Curse of Oak Island currently, uh, both <laughs> that's in the, the U.S. That's and the Canada. Gold. Yeah, that is the number one cable show <laughs> on both in both countries it is a gigantic deal uh it just tons of shows like that and very vaguely um dipped in history nowadays but uh you know it's a there's just a lot of stuff in there and you can watch a lot of the ufo shows if you're into ancient aliens and stuff like that uh just they pump out now, especially just hit after hit after hit. As of what was it, February nineteen or February twenty fifteen, that channel, a specialty channel, was an eighty two point six percent of all households in the U.S., which is a gigantic number for a specialty channel because that doesn't always, uh, that just doesn't always happen. That's a uh, that is a huge number, and so. You know, for whatever you got. And then we also talk about that. Uh, Josh McCuga, Eating History, big thing on there. Sadly, Uh, they canceled that, though. Heartbreaking. That show was amazing. It was awesome. And and, uh, Kings of Pain, if you're into watching two guys just get bit and stung by a number of animals to see how bad it hurts. I'm happy just thinking it probably hurt a lot and then let it go. But they weren't. And if it was just... Just a lot of compelling television on that channel, and it's been on since the very first day of 1995, History Channel. Do you know what wow. pisses me off about Curse of Oak Island? I still watch it, and they ain't found mm-hmm. shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, here's some wood with a little bit of gold fragmentation. It's like, who's paying for all this shit? They're like excavating yeah. the whole damn island. That I, well, one's I, a mystery. That, I think that one, I, I don't get that. Yeah. The the last episode there's just going to be all water. There's there's going to be no <laughs> island left. But I, I there was an episode that sticks out in mind from that one. They found this big rock and it had some markings on it and they're like this is the famed blah 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 stone and they hauled it. They paid like 
thousands to haul this thing off the island and bring it back to be studied. And it was like the whole episode, and it was like, you know, you know, those weird cliffhanger going to commercial kind of things. And it just kept doing it, kept doing it. And then at the end, they're like, this is definitely it. This is the key to everything. And they're like, oh, it turns out it's just a rock that's something rubbed up against <laughs> at some point. <laughs> it's the first NFT. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine NFTs in like five years? People are going to be like, what the, f what were we? And no, you know what? That Oculus Quest thing I was talking about before, it's probably going to come into effect on that shit. I bet you. Oh, no doubt. Oh, yeah. 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 You all get to make fun of somebody who spent their money on <laughs> NFTs in the, in the virtual game. You bought a $10,000 JPEG? That's cool. Great. Rad. <laughs> can I get that Great. BMP? Yeah, I just right clicked and hit save. <laughs> <laughs> I heard, I heard I was talking about that the other day because we got NFT'd on Twitter. I don't know if you saw any of this. No, but, what happened? Uh, it's record label called Hit Piece. Really, really disturbing. They just went ahead and started trying to sell NFTs of bands, and nobody had any permission to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Eve Six tweeted about that. Yeah. <laughs> NFT. Yeah, they, they had one for us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, really, really the worst. And I, I follow up conversation. Somebody actually used the term. Well, you know, that's part of the save as movement. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, stop you right there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just call stuff stuff that isn't stu what it is. And then like, <laughs> how much were they that's selling the new these name for? of the show? How much were they selling? Oh, I don't know. We could. They, they it all got taken down so fast, and we don't know if any money changed hands. Lawyers are looking at it. It's a big thing, oh, you know. Shit. It's like I did not uh, see this. Yeah. I gotta dig that up. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. All right, guys. So for my television selection, let's sit down on Friday night, January thirty first, nineteen eighty six, for a very special episode of Mister Belvedere, titled Wesley's Friend. In this episode. Wesley gets to play Abraham Lincoln in the school pageant when his friend Danny gets AIDS from a blood transfusion. Danny is pulled from school and shunned by all of his friends, including Wesley, in fear of getting AIDS themselves. But with a little help from Mr. Belvedere, we all learn a little about AIDS and a lot about compassion and friendship. So in an article in the Kentucky New Era dated January 22nd, 1986, uh, the, the article actually talks about when ABC executives were approached about an AIDS story for Mr. Belvedere, they were unenthusiastic, said executive producer Jeff Stein. One reaction was, how do you make it funny? <laughs> Give it to Bob Euchre. <laughs> <laughs> Stein and co-executive producer Frank Duggan uh, said the AIDS storyline was suggested by their business manager, Helen Kushnick, whose son had contracted AIDS from a blood transfusion and died. It's not our most hilarious episode, but it's an excellent personal story, said Stein. In the end, Wesley and his friend discuss mortality and agree to enjoy their remaining time together. It's Mr. Belvedere, Wesley's friend, January 31st, 1986. Man. Gotta love those very special episodes. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, Brendan, were you not the judge when we brought up the uh, the Hulk oh, yeah. comic where his friend, his friend had, had AIDS? AIDS? Yeah. Oh my yeah, God, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yep. I'm, so, I'm yeah. so sorry. 
Yeah, that's two. So that's two. Um, that was that was my pick, though. So at least Mark's off the hook. Wow. <laughs> you know, holy, holy themes. All right. Let's toss this one down to our guest judge, Brendan B. Brown from Wheatus, for his verdict on the television round. All right. So this is crazy. Um, Laverne and Shirley, obviously a real, a genuine classic. Like like a true, uh, almost like the odd couple, but female cast. Um, really, I would watch it if it came on TV and re reruns today. I'd just sit down and watch it because it's. I know it's. You know, it's. It, I think it's uh, Penny Marshall and her and her dad. Didn't didn't he? Wasn't he involved yeah, yep. as well? Right. Yep, okay. Yep. So um, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Uh, we got uh, a little bit of Compellivision, if you will, with the History Channel or the Hitler Channel, as it is sometimes uh, known um uh launched january 1995 um interesting anecdote my grandmother uh uh went through the process of alzheimer's and uh we didn't uh bring her to a home or or uh do any of that stuff we all took turns uh at my family home and i had the morning shift uh most of the times and uh one morning i was uh helping get her breakfast together and she's watching the history channel and there's hitler railing and blah, 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 you know blah 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 his usual thing and she says you know you don't see much of him anymore <laughs> and, and I, I i i never found out if she was just trying to be funny because she st still had her sense of humor was intact right so I, I, she might have been trying to sneak, sneak one past me, or she might have just been in a moment where she thought it was, you know, 1938 when she was a little girl, and you know, he was he was starting to be in the news or whatever, you know. I thought I you were going to say know. something like, you know, he's not that bad looking if he got rid of the mustache. <laughs> right. Oh, right. I actually got to tell that story to Gilbert Gottfried, and he. <laughs> He <sighs> guffawed at it. So, uh, moving right along, uh, Mr. Belvedere, what a wonderful show! Uh, true, true '90s piece. Like that's a real '90s piece. Gabrielle Sturbins, my girlfriend, really liked Mr. Belvedere. Used to watch it. Um, uh, I, I love that this that the execs were like, how, you know, what are we gonna do with this? Are you kidding me? Kind of thing. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. That's the kind of thing where it's like, there's a lot to risk, but if you get it right you'll have something that goes beyond the way that uh, right. they did in all in the family when Edith died, for example, I'm, I'll never get that one or uh, any of the, uh, I remember the, the drugs different sort of strokes. anorexia episode of, uh, of, uh, well, what was the show? Uh, different strokes. You mean different? No, not different yeah. strokes. Oh, uh, that was the child molestation one. That well, was yeah. really, but they had was... a, there was one where uh, Kimberly was bulimic. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the bulimic one, but I'm talking about the drugs in, uh, um, oh, the girls' school. I for, uh, Facts of Life? Yeah. Facts of Life. Facts of Life. Facts of Life. I remember the drugs episode there. Um, yeah. So, like those, those when they tackled the serious topic moments, that was something that happened going all the way back to Carol O'Connor. Uh, it'd be interesting, you know, have a show based on those moments, go back in time, see, like, where something that was usually lighthearted, fair, tried to tackle something real serious. You know, how did it go? Um, I think or, I would guess too that close it was... for comfort where uh, the dude got raped by the three chicks. What was his name? Uh, Jim J. Bullock. Oh, I don't remember that at all. He gets raped by like three biker chicks. I wish sitcoms did episodes like this today. Like, <laughs> take a break. Like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Just throw out a dead serious episode right in the right? middle. Why right? not? 
Oh, I thought you meant a dude episode getting raped by three chicks was something they had to bring back. Well, if the shoe fits, you know. <laughs> but do you do you remember that whenever they tackled a serious subject, they used to uh, they used to like prep the audience and be like, yeah. "And tonight, a very special episode of yes, of yep. different sort." Yeah, it was like, it, you know, it's like, oh, we got to watch this. We got to watch. Let's see what happens. You know, and <laughs> we used to have a, moments of socially conscious awareness where we all gathered together. Like today, you'd be like, "Why are they fucking with my brand, man? Fucking, that's yeah. my shit. Supposed to be funny. What the fuck? I'm not watching this crap." Like people would get all bent out of shape and you know assy about it, you know. Oh uh, God, Mike Ranger, our our friend that's uh, usually on with us a lot, he's all about those episodes. That's basically that's his thing. He he's seen all of those episodes. I think Mike's done episodes on of his own show about those episodes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd be curious to him. me where it started. I my guess would be Carol O'Connor with All in the Family. Yeah, you know the serious shit was there was time for it. People had time for it. You know, let's just. I feel and, like it ended with the Fresh Prince. That's the last show I remember watching that had episode because they had the gun episode. Yeah, they had the dad walking out on him episode. Do you remember? Oh man, when the father died in Good Times. Yeah, there was not a lot of good times and good times. No, no but that that one, that one was so heavy, man. I was young. I was really young, and I was into that show. I used to like that was one of those shows I used to know what time it was on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I used to watch it just because I love JJ. I thought he was the shit, and and the sister was hilarious. Um, but uh, the like that one hit me out of nowhere, and the dad had just died, and it was like just crushing for a young a little kid to watch is like yeah, ser super serious episode it was so hardcore anyway so with that all said uh <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and say that uh these are all fine choices but the mr belvedere thing is is uh probably the most impactful uh, legacy thing make the biggest mark um just, just in its unlikeliness, you know, like it was, it, you, we we're talking about it now, like this could never happen today, you know, um, but uh, that, it used to. So I think that's going to be the one, Mr. Belvedere. All right. Good job, Mark. What was the score anyway? I don't even know where we were. Three to two to two. Oh, okay. Well, that's right, tight. Yeah. That's tight. No chance for ties in this one. We were, uh, we're good enough. So Brendan, we got to meet a couple months ago. It, it feels like uh, that was like two years ago because, again, we're on COVID time. So, yeah, uh, I, when, I don't even remember. Was that like July when you? Yeah, it was uh, up in Middletown. Middletown? Middle yeah, Middletown. Middletown. You, you were sitting on a on a folding chair and you're out, yeah. in, out in your it, out in your element. <laughs> and then and then it rained like biblical style. <laughs> yes, it did. And I was like my wife and I were the only ones that stood in the crowd during Living Color. Everyone went under the tent, like ran. I was like. This is the first concert we've been to in two years. We're staying right here. And she was like, all right. We, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. It was like sideways. I have video of that one. I won't show anybody because uh, I had just gotten a new phone at the time and I was recording Living Color. But at the same time, it was recording me. So I'm up in the corner and it's just me lip syncing every word like a fucking psychopath. <laughs> so the only person, or the only people that have ever seen the video are my wife and myself. And it's That's fucking fantastic. hysterical. <clears throat> um yeah i have footage from behind the stage that night uh -huh. where there was real concern that the stage was getting undermined by the the deluge because it was like it was just it was gushing off of off of the stage uh yeah 
framework like it was like it, there were fire hoses come like on it was crazy and you know there's a lot of electronics there and you're watching the racks of of like power amps and stuff are like the water is up around the racks of the power amps and that's a lot of voltage man and you know it was like one of these moments where it was like holy cow they really needed to play this show like everyone really did they went ahead you know this <laughs> is crazy was that was that venue the worst one of your tour we we're talking oh, about no, the summer that was tour. i love that venue uh I oh actually the- let me re- let me rephrase was it the worst venue and i'll lead into why i'm asking you this was it the worst venue for sound no tour? No, no i okay. i i mean we were still it was i think that was the second show and we were still kind of yeah. getting our legs making sure that everything was working and um uh, no, I, I, the sound was felt okay on that. I watched, I was, I watched some of the living color set, but then I was, I had to run inside and, uh, watched a whole bunch of the Everclear set and, uh, a little bit of Huba too. Um, but, um, you know, that, at that time Huba was on when we were breaking down. So we were, had a lot yeah. of work to do, but, um, no, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was so, good sound. All right. So like, um, uh, I think it was a month later I went there and we saw, uh, Better than Ezra, Tonic, and Collective Soul. I don't know if you know any cool. of these guys. Yeah, but cool, uh, Bill, I love Better Than Ezra. Okay, so Better Than Ezra, great. So uh Tonic went first. They were they were they were good. Uh Better Than Ezra went uh during was it during good? I think it was while they were playing good, the amp went out. Am I using the right terminology? Guitar or, uh, amp or the or the power amps for this? The power thing? amps for the no no no, no, no the sound went out. So all you yeah. heard was them playing, but it wasn't loud, right? So right. Uh, they stopped the show. Uh, 45 minutes go by. They they fix it. Better than Ezra comes back out. They resume the show. So then we're all waiting, right? They, they finish their set. And uh, an hour goes by. Everyone's like, what the fuck's going on? And then uh, the security guard in the front is like, well, actually, first we see people just leaving. And we're like, oh, people are probably just like going to their cars or some shit. And uh, my friend Eric and I walk up to the stage. The security guard's telling everybody to go home. And we're like, what the fuck? What, what's going on? He's like, yeah, Collective Soul left. <laughs> they uh, they decided the uh, the sound was too screwed up, and they just decided to bolt. Wow. Didn't um, even come out to say a word. <laughs> yeah. Just or fucking to, left. Like, it, like if you can't play because the PA is foobar. Yeah. I would grab an acoustic guitar and go out and play to whoever was still there as much as I possibly yeah. could. Unless the promoter was like, no, I'm shutting down the show. It's not safe. Uh, there's a short um, PA's not working, uh, you know, the or some clause in his contract gets gets opened up where the show has to be rescheduled. So you're not allowed to play. But even then, I would kind of go out to merch and be like, I'm so sorry, you know, let what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear? Let's see if we can squeeze it in, you know, acoustic, right? Uh, but- Not a fucking peep, man. Like, and I like Collective Soul, and that just, I was like, that's pretty fucking low for, uh, I, well, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, there are reasons that they would have had to have left, straight up left. Um, again, I, I struggle to find a reason that they would have had to leave without explaining to the people waiting or at least giving them some sort of an acoustic performance just as like an act of like, we love you. Sorry, we can't play a real show, but we're going to play. Um, what's that song that the big hit that they have? Uh, you're, 
<laughs> I think that's what it's called. It's called yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. They have a lot of songs. And, yeah, like play yeah, the song. Do, play, play, play somebody something. You know. You're, yeah, you, even you if you came out and did one, even if even if they just came out and said, "Hey, you know, uh, shit went sideways. We'll come back, uh, but it's not going to be tonight. Sorry, guys," and then left. But we didn't even get that. It was like, what the fuck just happened? People were pissed, and then they uh, they offered uh, free tickets. The venue offered free tickets to see um, uh, Cheap Trick a couple weeks later. I had seen them show. already, though. I saw them at that's, Bethel. Uh, that's yeah, cool. <laughs> but after like the sound issues there, I didn't go back again. And then Sebastian Bach was supposed to play there, and he canceled. Uh, he was supposed to be there in October, so I don't know if they ever fixed that sound issue. Because I don't think uh, anybody real big came after that. That sucks. Well, I mean, that's 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 poor management for the venue. That's poor management for the acts. Nobody wins when somebody walks like that, you know. Yeah. Like, and it's hard to understand what reason there would be. I can't think of one where you just have to leave and not explain. That's like crazy. if you shit your pants. And you didn't have a like a pair, a pair to change hat into, like I, I see that you can come out in your underwear and play a song. <laughs> just gonna yeah. say, just I was waiting, I was waiting, I was waiting. I knew, I knew it was, I knew it was going there. So, who did you guys hang out with most in the Summerland tour? Was it? Uh, oh man, ever clear because so that you guys went tour. Back the, I, this has never happened before. That tour was family, 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 all the crew all the bands all of the families of bands when they were around there were no restrictions everybody was cool there wasn't a single asshole on the whole entire crew not one person we were so tight and together on that one that i can almost guarantee that nothing like that will ever happen again like to have that many personalities under the stress of covid you know we had to cancel here and there a couple Kudos to Art Alexakis. That guy um, puts his fucking money where his mouth is, and if something gets fucked up along the line, he tr- he works to figure out how to make it right then and there. Like a couple shows got canceled, and then like the next day, he's coming to me. He's like, "Okay, man, sorry about all that. You know, we got this one though. We're adding this one. You can come on this one with us." Like he was like, he gave a shit about the whole thing, and the family vibe was incredible. It was just perfect. Um, still have relationships with the with the other band members texting with Hubastank, texting with vernon reed and and uh you know uh will calhoun lives close by me in the bronx we've seen each other here and there um friends for life like like truly uh vernon used the word delightful and that that that's 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 true so <laughs> that's yeah that's so cool man yeah, yeah it, it seems was like really cool even for your second show of that bill i mean it sounded like everybody had it together it was it was fun yeah, I loved it. I mean, except for the weather. I mean, the, the weather sucked balls, but it they were amazing. Do you, actually, can you, maybe you can answer this question for me. That Living Color set, did they have to shorten that because of the weather? I don't it think seemed, they did. Oh, really? It seemed kind of like, I don't know, maybe because I was drenched. It felt pretty quick. They may have had to cut a song, but those guys, they play. They're insane. Dude. Yeah, they're they're Holy that's shit. they're virtuosic. Every member of that band is one of the best players of their instrument. Corey is flawless at you know 
however old he is i don't even know he looks like a teenager to me seriously um (laughs) you know like that the just just the lessons learned watching those guys do the real thing i you can't you can't buy that kind of access you know it's just incredible um so it was it was really it was really emotional and and we kept kind of pinching ourselves like how the fuck did we get on this amazing tour this is crazy um they're gonna figure us out any day now they're gonna realize we're a bunch of douchebags from long island does everyone think that though like when you go out on tour with other bands i don't know i don't know know? imposter syndrome is real especially when you're hanging down with a guy who you know like vernon reed i stopped trying to play like him when i was 15 because that was just too hard you know (laughs) and i like now you're on tour with him what do i do do i say that to him you know (laughs) you know like so um uh, it was it was very pinch me, but everyone was so just real and, you know, staying away from alcohol and drugs and just kind of waking up the next morning and making each other breakfast and figuring it out because there's a challenge here and there, you know, obviously. Um, but uh, it was like I could have done that forever. I really yeah. could have done that. Forever. You guys look like you're having a blast. I mean, if you looked at your social media, like on Instagram, you they were always posting videos of you doing some crazy shit in a parking lot or something in random <laughs> place you'd be like in cleveland ohio like in your underwear reading a book in the parking lot or something yeah there was a lot of parking lots there was a lot of summer sun um there was a lot of fear of covid but there was a lot of everybody understanding that shit was fucked up and just figuring out how to do the best version of it considering what was going on you know like it, it was that was the challenge every day and it nobody crumbled nobody crumbled not once was, and not it, once it did you fun. need to buy a cop doctor or any kind of no, car. No, I didn't have to buy any <laughs> right. cops, any any cars, or whip out the credit card and you know trade trade a Lincoln for some pills. You know, and it's never happened. Oh, by the way, so like maybe I think it was a couple months ago. I was emailing you guys back and forth, but you were you were still on tour with um, with Everclear. It was like secondary tour, I think. But somebody had sent me a screener about the uh, the whole murder thing that you were talking about, that whole the inspiration for Teenage Dirtbag. Mm-hmm. And then I think Matt had mentioned in those emails that you did an interview on that. On that yeah. movie. Oh, you did. Yeah, I did. yeah, I was interviewed for it. Yeah, um, that's some shit. Do you remember what it was even called? Because like, I can't find the email now. Uh, the the um, the Ricky Casso doc that Je- that uh, Jesse did. Jesse Pollock is the author of the book. Uh, the book is is Simon and Schuster, and it's called The Acid King. That's what. Okay. Okay. So the book know. is the definitive, like true crime uh, telling of uh, some people who's uh, who are still alive. Their names have been changed, um, and they weren't because they weren't part of the police official police record or anything. But. Um, but that is it. Jesse's book is the real thing. Um, if you want to learn about that whole time and that and that event, that's the book. Um, sadly, the rest of what's been said on that in in documentary form on that murder is usually bullshit, like yeah. a lot of like hooey. But Jesse did a companion sort of documentary. Uh, he partnered, I think. And the, uh, I, w- I was interviewed for the documentary and I'm, I'm in that and there's quite a bit. It's sort of like real sort of gritty, um, you know, punk rock doc on on the on the thing um, on the murder. But yeah. Um, yeah, that was that's a that's a true story. That should be out now, too, because I, I think that was like around like October ish. 
the day it's yeah, I think it came out. out. Yeah, I think it came so, out. So check that out if you want to people out there, the Acid King. Look for the documentary and the book. Obviously, maybe you can be like me and just have somebody read it to you. Just uh, go to audible.com and and find a copy and let somebody read it to you while you sleep. What uh, yeah. what else you guys got coming up now? Are you going back on tour this year? Uh, yeah, we uh, our booking agent. It's all in flux as it always will be if there's a COVID thing happening. But we just threw us ninety dates for the states, and and uh, nice. We don't exactly know what window they're going to be in yet, but um, uh, we're going to hit the road again. We don't know who with, but we're definitely going to do it. And in the meantime, I'm going to be in here trying to finish up these uh, the next ten songs from the twenty song version of uh, of our first album. Uh, there's 10 of them are up online already and I have another 10 to go and, uh, try and get them done by the summertime and get this thing over with and, and out there. Um, and, uh, hopefully by then we'll be in the last, whatever's going on with COVID and, and, uh, we can get back to some kind of a thing, you know, other thing that not this shit. <laughs> Seriously. I'm holding out for April, like all along. I've, I don't know where it came from, but in the back of my head was like April, 2022, this is gonna be over. So I'm, yeah. I'm sticking with it. I know we'll get another disclaimer for that one. If you if you had that feeling, if you had that feeling, then then maybe it's right. Yeah. You know? It's got to be we'll, it. We'll say 420. Yeah. <laughs> 420, <laughs> it's going to end. And if we're wrong, nobody's going to care. And not not looking to engage in any disinformation, but were were those reports that THC <laughs> was uh was the yeah. cannabis was yeah. I I I saw the I saw that article and I read it. So I a study was done. <laughs> I like I like your skepticism. I like it. That's a modern man right there responding you, to You have to, to just uh, try it yourself, I guess. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not going to hurt. So, I mean, just, hey, I'm doing all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do that to my body. More of my own pee for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, dude, thanks again for coming on, though, bro. Like, it's super fun when you come on. If you come back to this area, please let me know. I'll, I'll come, definitely come to another show. It was awesome the last time. Oh, hell yeah. We'll bug you. Thank you for, for your patience. I'm sorry I, w- I screwed up last week and, and didn't get on in time. And, and uh, you know, I appreciate you guys being patient and, and moving stuff around. It's, you know, you're, eh, you're shit. Like I said, life happens. Like, what do you do? Yep. It does. It does. Yeah. Just move on. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. want to say thanks again to our wonderful guest judge for this episode, Mr. Brendan B. Brown from Weedus. Uh, and duelers, if you've missed an episode, you can always head over to DuelingDecades.com. There you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, really everywhere podcasts are available. And while you're on those interwebs, head on over to our Facebook page and join our private group, where you could share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.